This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Hello, I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO at the Australian Museum, and you're listening to Amplify, one of the Australian Museum's regular podcasts where we talk to our research scientists and other staff who work behind the scenes to give you a glimpse of what is in our extraordinary collection at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Today, I'm joined by one of our most fantastic young scientists, Dr Jodie Rowley. Jodie is an amphibian biologist in herpetology at the Australian Museum Research Institute. Now, Jodie, welcome along to Amplify. Thank you. It's great to have you because the great thing that Jodie does and she's known for are frogs. And of course, we've got so many frogs here in Australia and around the world, haven't we? Yeah, there's about seven and a half thousand species of frogs and other amphibians that we know of around the world and a lot more that we still have yet to discover. And how many in Australia? Uh, over 200 species, but it's probably going to be closer to 300 by the time we fully understand the diversity of frogs. You... And why are frogs so important? They're, well, I get I kind of fell in love with them partly because they're just gorgeous. The eyeballs, the toe pads, these precious animals. But one of the reasons that I chose to focus on them was because they're in so much trouble. They're an important part of our ecosystem. They are food. For a lot of things and they also eat a ton of invertebrates so so insects really a really important part of our ecosystem and when they disappear we notice huge effects and the tadpoles actually also eat a lot of algae in rivers and streams so when you lose one species of frog it's almost like losing two because the tadpoles are gone from the streams the streams choke up with algae the adults are gone from the land there's potentially more invertebrates around more potentially pest insects so we know that frogs eat mosquitoes don't they yeah so small frogs definitely would eat mosquitoes and the tadpoles actually compete with mosquitoes as well so the more tadpoles you have in a pond the less likely you are to have mosquitoes so i have a very obvious question for you jody how did you become fascinated in frogs I wish I had a good answer. I actually sort of grew up more of a city person. My parents didn't take me hiking or anything like that. And it wasn't until I did environmental science at the University of New South Wales that I was actually exposed to all these amazing, you know, rainforests not that far from Sydney. And we went out at night and looked in streams. Where and, was that? And there was frogs. Actually, Dorigo was Dorigo National Park was probably the place that I really got into it. I, although around Sydney, I did spend some time in Karengai Chase National Park as well. But just to realise that these things are around you, you know, um, sitting inside and going to school and, you know, backwards and forwards in suburbia, I never really realised how much wildlife there was uh, and, of course, how, how much it needed conservation. So I guess, though, living in Sydney and going to school, you did hear frogs in your backyard, maybe, or around the school? I remember once we collected some tadpoles from up the driveway and raised them, my mum and I, you know, boiling spinach or lettuce and, and, and raising them to adults. So I think that was probably the, the most experience that I had. I actually, the first five years of my life were in the city in Sydney in Surrey Hills, so I don't think I really heard that much wildlife there. No, not too many frogs in Surrey Hills, probably. But what got your interest in science flaring? Because I know you did biology in high school. Uh, I was... I found it easy and I, probably because I was interested in it. Um, 
less interested in maths, uh, for example, um, although that, that's been an important part of things still, so it was important that I did do it. Um, I, I was fascinated with life, I guess, fascinated with how things worked, how plants, um, how many species there were. But I'm not one of those kids that was everyone would have said that I would have been a biologist. And I kind of wish I was inspired earlier on so that I would have had more time to get good at this frog thing, you know. Um, but it wasn't really until I was 18 that I really discovered that my passion, so I sort of just happened to fall into environmental science. I thought I was going to be a graphic artist maybe, I was into art, but then I got quite a good mark at school and then I thought, oh, but I do really like biology. Uh, you know, I do really, you know, care about the environment. I didn't really know much about it aside from year 12 biology. Uh, and then thankfully, luck has it that I did environmental science and that's when, yeah, that's when it was an irreversible track towards what I'm doing now. So doing that environmental science degree at the University of New South Wales, was there a eureka moment when you went, oh my God, frogs are going to dominate my life? Um, I, th I think it was that first time when I went to Dorigo National Park and went out at night and saw things like these giant barred frogs. And frogs, I don't know, they almost look like they're not real. Like how can this you know, thing with you know, red eyes and purple thighs and, you know, how, how can that thing be real? And, and, you know, because it's kind of also quite harmless, like it can't really attack you or do anything like a lot of animals. And that's probably why a lot of animals like to eat them and rely on them for food. Uh, and so it was a combination of thinking that the most amazing gems in the forest and then realising how much trouble they were in and that they needed they needed us, you know, they needed people to figure out what's going on and try and stop their declines. So it's because of, of course, their habitat is being encroached by development, but also I would assume the impact of climate change. Is that having a significant impact on our frog populations? We we know that it is affecting frogs around the world, but there's still a lot of research that needs to be done. So they're one of the first animals to be responding to climate change. And we're noticing it most in sort of temperate or montane areas where things are starting to breed at different times of years because frogs are so seasonal and usually, you know, they'll start breeding when the snow melts in Europe. They're getting earlier and earlier. And so things are starting to change in that respect. And it has having some quite some big consequences, but also particularly for mountain species that like cool wet conditions on the top of the mountain if things start changing there then it's going to tip the balance in not in their favor so as well as studying frogs you have to be quite outdoorsy Jody, because you're up there climbing mountains looking for them aren't you in the middle of the night i i am uh and i might not be the best person for that because i'm really bad at sleeping in so it's always this where i'm out looking for frogs until one or two o'clock in the morning uh climbing around the forest not worrying too much about leeches or mosquitoes or things like that and then waking up after i've been in bed for three or four hours oh no i'm up again <laughs> up again and the frogs have all gone off to sleep by then, of course. Yeah, if I was I was a better frogger, I would be able to sleep in more. A frogger. Yes. I love that term. <laughs> so you're like queen frogger out there. Yeah, we go frogging. Yeah, that's the term. <laughs> Isn't it great? Now, I know you've done a lot of work in Southeast Asia and you've discovered quite a few new frog species too. Can you tell us about those species? Okay, so at the moment, uh, my colleagues and I have discovered, I think it's 16 wow. new species of frog from, from Asia, so primarily Vietnam. And so after my PhD, which I did up at James Cook University on frogs, as, as you would expect, I around that time the Global Amphibian Assessment came out and it highlighted, well, A, how much trouble amphibians were in. And at that stage, it was more than one third of all amphibians threatened with extinction, and it's more than that now. And 
B, how much Southeast Asia was a black hole in terms of our knowledge, and but we suspected that it was very high diversity of amphibians and very high threat. So I thought, right, I can be most useful. I'm moving to Cambodia. So I moved over there, started working with some amazing local colleagues, and I initially wanted to do conservation ecology. I'm going to figure this stuff out, but. I didn't know what I was looking at and no one knew there was these amazing new species of frog that we were just coming across and it's very hard to do any kind of conservation or ecology work try and save the frogs if you don't know how many frogs and where they are so so who helps you in Southeast Asia when you go frogging I work with uh, depending on where I am universities across and, and museums from across the country and in Cambodia Vietnam so I've got some really great colleagues and part of what I started doing um, when I first started working there which was really important was to do training courses in amphibian biology and conservation and get a bunch of new students and then do obviously capacity building, uh, training parks, getting master's students, getting PhD students so that we work in teams and I'm not the only one doing the job so we all work together to try and discover the biodiversity and and that's resulted in so far 16. There's another uh, quite a few coming up soon as well. So some of these frogs you've discovered I mean they're brilliant colours, they're bright green and they have green blood is that right? Yeah, so some of the frogs are absolutely amazing. One of the first frogs that I discovered that became famous was the vampire flying frog, and that's probably got to be one of my favourite. Why did you call it vampire flying frog? Well, it's a type of flying frog, so it has it's adapted for life in the trees. It has huge hands and feet with webbing, and it spends most of its life in the trees. It doesn't need to come down. It breeds in water-filled holes within the trees themselves. And so it was... It was it was definitely a flying frog. It was brick red, beautiful little frog. And I, although I didn't realise how cool it was until I found the tadpoles in these tree holes, looked at them back here at the Australian Museum under a microscope, and instead of having the normal kind of mouth parts, which are little beaky things that aren't super impressive in tadpoles, they had curved black fangs sticking Whoa. out of their mouth. So I instantly knew that this was not normal. This was something that's pretty amazing. Uh, and... I emailed the world's tadpole expert who's a retired professor in Mississippi and he replied in all capitals and so we decided right it's probably the most unusual tadpole in the world and therefore we're going to name the frog after it so that why it's that's why it is the vampire flying frog or Racophorus vampirus. So what is that moment like when you're sitting in the lab after having been on an expedition and you're looking down the microscope it's and you see something like that. It must be extraordinary. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, I guess there's two different kinds of discovery moments. There's the one when you're in the forest in the middle of the night with a headlamp, you hear some strange kind of call from a frog you've never sort of heard before and you, you get really curious. Maybe it's something that is new and you see something and, and you know it's new uh, at, the, at that moment. And that is an amazing discovery. But the second kind of discovery and probably the more common kind of discovery is back at the museum when you go in the DNA lab or you're looking at a frog under a microscope and you then you just it's a eureka moment aha you know i've proved it this is definitely something that no one's ever seen before and it might look quite similar to some of the other frogs you've seen so that you don't make the discovery until you look at all the evidence and that's here now at the moment i know you've been off on an expedition in new south wales for the australian museum looking at some new potential frog species and their habitats can you tell us about that expedition 
Okay, so this, this expedition was just focused on New South Wales and probably many people are surprised to know we don't totally know the diversity of frogs even within New South Wales and we don't really know where all the species are distributed and we don't know if sort of there's any hidden diversity. So there are, I've already mentioned, a lot of frogs that kind of look similar, really similar to the point in New South Wales that there are frogs that you can, I can't tell apart. Because you're looking at them. You can actually identify a frog though by the call, not exactly. by its appearance. Exactly. So there was two particular species that we were looking at on, on this trip. We were looking at many and just trying to get a handle on the diversity across New South Wales. But we spent a lot of time in the dark with our call recorders trying to get the little voices of these frogs. There's two leaf green tree frogs in New South Wales that are actually impossible to tell apart and the one way you have to wait until they call so you can be in a stream you're like I don't know it's one of them I can see it like I can look at it but it's not until you actually hear the little voice of the frog and they've got completely different calls so I think you went up in a helicopter didn't you was that fun looking for these frogs oh that that was just before Christmas another expedition in Oxley Wild Rivers National Park as part of uh, Bush Blitz that was amazing so we got Oxley Wild Rivers is a very topographically diverse national park with all these gorges and it's really remote and inaccessible and it was identified as a as a part of the world where we had really no knowledge of of the frogs very little understanding so in order to do a biodiversity survey of the area and I was just one part of it I was the frogs there was also fish and other museum scientists there um, we we got to get helicopters to remote inaccessible places and so that was a lot of fun so we were helicopter frogging Helicopter frogging, I love the concept. Now, Jody, just one last question. I want to ask you about cane toads because they we all know they're the pests, but they are frogs by species. Yes? Yeah, so one of the most common questions I get asked is what's the difference between a toad and a frog? And the answer is very little. Just their name, basically. Yeah, so there's 50 different families or 55 different families of frogs and toads and true frogs and true toads are just one of those. So it doesn't accurately describe the amazing amount of diversity. They're pretty much the same thing, which is why they're so hard to get some kind of control because if you do something that's going to harm a cane toad, then you're likely to also harm our frogs because they're not that different. So those cane toads are heading south, aren't they? They are, and actually, I doing my PhD in Townsville, I was quite familiar with the cane toad, but it's been a while working closer to Sydney. But now we went up all the way to the border and just seeing how abundant they are, it was actually a bit of a shock again. Yeah, it really is. Is And is that climate related or is it just that this species is on the move, that they're proliferating? Yeah, the latter, although I'm sure climate change actually won't work in a, in a good way and it will probably facilitate them getting into places where they might not have been to in the past. Well, Jodie Rowley, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you about frogs. We're going to do more frogging, chatting to you later about some of your work overseas and really dig deeper there. But thanks very much for joining us today on Amplify. Thank you. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.